0: My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.
1: I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question. How can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. When most people in America think about eating vegetarian or vegan on Thanksgiving, the first thing that probably comes to mind is Tofurky. Known for their quirky take on the Thanksgiving turkey, this iconic brand has been a staple in homes for decades. But the company had some humble beginnings. Seth Tibbet launched his little company 37 years ago under the name Turtle Island Foods. He took a small loan from his brother and lived in a tree house to help fund the business. After 15 years of selling tempeh products in relative obscurity, Seth finally hit it big with their first holiday roast in 1995. The original tofurkey was a silver bullet that got the company started and from there they changed their name and the rest is history. Today, Toferki makes deli slices, sausages, frozen pizzas, DIY burger kits, and a range of other innovative meat-free products. Through all their amazing success and growth, Toferki has remained a family-owned business based out of Hood River, Oregon. While Seth is still with the company, he has now passed the CEO torch onto his stepson, Jamie Athos. Jamie has a PhD in neuroscience, but came back to his family business after being frustrated with the politics of the science world. I recently had the chance to catch up with Jamie and got some really unique insight into how the company has been able to remain true to their values in the face of many challenges and an enormous growth. Through it all, Torfaki has been able to stay relevant and independent because of their unwavering focus on a goal to make products that are good for people, the environment, and animals. In our conversation, Jamie shares his thoughts on a range of subjects, from the huge responsibility he inherited from Seth Tibbet to thoughts on staying independent, balancing the mission of the company with profit, decoding the sudden hype in the plant-based food space, as well as how he hopes to use Tofurky's vast knowledge and experience to help new brands in the space with everything from support to manufacturing. To Jamie, Tofurky's so-called competitors in the world of plant-based food are just collaborators. He believes every brand has to work together to help transform our food system. That is, if you truly want to make a difference. Jamie Athos from Turfurkey, uh, thanks so much for being on the Eat for the Planet podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Jamie, so you've taken on the role of, as president and CEO of uh, turfurkia uh, about three years ago. Um, and I would love to start off by asking you about what is happening in the overall food space and the plant-based food space specifically. There's a lot of hype and there's a lot written about food startups that are going to disrupt the food industry from the inside out um, using technology to ex- to isolate proteins from plants. Technology or techno jargon, depending on who you talk to, to turn that into uh, plant-based meat and egg substitutes and non-dairy beverages and things like that. But before all of this hype and the sort of gold rush in the plant-based food space, there was Tofurky more than 30 years ago now, almost 37 years ago. Um, And you took on the role of of president and CEO of the company a few years ago of this iconic brand um, after working in the company for almost a decade. What did that mean to you to take on that role of this company that's, that's sort of been at the forefront of this before anyone even knew about it or when anyone thought this was just all a big joke um, and only for vegans or some, or a small
2: population, a small segment of the population. Um, Yeah, it's a, it's a huge responsibility. Um, I think it is the brand means more than just the products that we make. It's sort of a, a, it, it created a place for vegan foods for a lot of people and it was, it is a funny name. It's, it's a quirky neologism, however you say that word. Um, and it, it kind of created its own press as a result of that. And I think it came at a time when sort of plant-based foods were a part like a subcategory of health foods and health food is very serious and hard to relate to and unapproachable. Tofurky is not. tofurky's quirky and Tofurky feels like friendly and inviting. Um, And I think that that had a lot of resonance with people. And our initial products were really built around solving the problem of big meal occasions, like holiday occasions, Thanksgiving, for example. This is a time when people come together and you don't always see eye to eye, even with your own family and your friends on everything. And that is true of your food choices and your politics. And there still should be something for everybody at that table. And I think you know, kind of that those early products, those holiday products, they really uh, created an association with our brand that was extremely personal for people. So I I understand that I understand that well because I hear those stories all the time when people talk to me. Um, so that that feels like a responsibility. You know, those are stakeholders without whom this company wouldn't exist. Um, and beyond that, this is a family-owned company. So in to some degree, I'm taking the reins of my family's the fruits of All my family's labors and my job is to do good work with it and luckily we all define that the same way Uh, it's not about profit necessarily we have to have a healthy company though and we have 130 or close to 140 employees now and they're part of the family too and I have a huge responsibility to them as well it's also a massive privilege though you know I've been able to kind of stand on the shoulders of a giant in the form of my stepfather Seth, Seth Tibbet, because he's the one who went through those earlier years people didn't see what the point of a product like ours was you know, initially. Retailers had to be convinced. The marketplace had to be convinced. He's a convincing kind of a personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know, that is one of those entrepreneurial skills or, or, or features of his personality is that I, I don't think I could have done what he did. But stepping into this role, I've, my strengths are kind of the right strengths for the time, this moment in the company's history it's scaled up to a point where it's less, um, uh, you, you can't just make assumptions that each other are kind of working toward the same goal. You have to communicate those things explicitly. You have to create systems. You have to think about your product development cycle in a new way. You know, Back then, it was more like happy accidents in the kitchen. Um, they were intentional to some degree, but the outcome was less certain, less known, less scripted. And uh, that's not true now. We, we know because we do our own version of due diligence about what the marketplace needs. We consider what our capabilities are, what the technology allows for. It's very deliberate, which is a different version of the same company. At the end, I think that the outcome is the same. Um, We create good products. We try to stick to our values and choose ingredients that we'd want to eat ourselves. Um, Yeah, and I definitely I, I see the the two sides of this coin, the responsibility and the privilege of this this position that I'm in.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned um, putting in processes and systems to kind of um, steer this company into um, a better future, to continue down the road of growth that you've seen in the last um, several decades. What have you done differently, and what have you brought in that you think wasn't there before besides, of course, systems and processes? when you took, when you took this responsibility, were you hoping to um, make any significant changes in the short term? And have you made any?
2: Uh, yes, I'd say the most important change was was around people. Um, the company was really run by less than a handful of people, Seth being one. But it was maybe about three of us really that were really the key decision makers for every aspect of the company. That's really lean. Mm-hmm. Um, and we live in a small town, a beautiful town. But bringing talent into that town or finding talent within that ta- town is um, not the easiest thing. It's not like a major metro area where you've got professionals and all different sorts of, you know, sk- different skill sets available. Um, and I think, you know, beyond just the, the skills and experience that those people brought in, they had to have their own personal mission that dovetailed in some way with the Tofurki mission, too. So that was out of the gate. That was the first thing. Get the right people. Um, And I think we've been really successful with that. You know, now the core team of decision makers is probably closer to 10 or 12. Um, And that's a lot of new people and a lot of alignment has to happen. A lot of conversations have to happen so that they understand what it is that they're stepping into and what we stand for. Thus, the need for some systems around, well, I mean, formality around things that other people might see as obvious, but we didn't really have to engage in like strategy, um, you know, what our messaging is going to be, things like that. Um, and I think we become a better version of ourselves, really. We've discovered, we've looked internal, we've done the introspection, we understand what we're about in ways that were a surprise to even me, a person who was kind of living it and really assuming that I did understand it. Peeling back the layers of it, though, I have more clarity than ever on who we are and what we stand for. And it makes that strategic process um, a lot simpler, too. You know what's important and what's not I think it's really easy to fall into the trap of trying to be all things to all people. But that's not possible, frankly. And uh, I think knowing what does matter and what doesn't matter makes it easier to you know, kind of exclude certain opportunities. Mm-hmm.
1: And in terms of, um, you know, I know a big focus that you've had uh, in the last few years is sustainability and you've brought in, um, you've taken a few steps in that direction. Was that, I'm assuming that was sort of part of the DNA of the company anyway? Um, but what has changed on that front? Um, any, I know you, you went through the B Corp certification process. Maybe you can tell me a little bit more about how you view your company's role as it relates to sustainability and, you know, being a food company, everything from the supply chain to your actual facilities, to anything packaging, Uh, how have you approached it prior to you coming on as CEO and, um, has it really changed, and what's new really at the
0: moment?
2: I'd say it's, that's another version of what I just told you yeah. about, which is I think that those elements were always there. Mm-hmm. They were maybe not as clearly um, understood or articulated um, internally. Um, and you know, my my background is actually not in food, although I worked for this family company. I had a completely different career, and it was actually a science career. I was a neuroscientist, um, and you know, I think ultimately. The, I did that because I wanted to make a change and I saw a way to do that just through through science and creating uh, therapies for neurodegenerative diseases or whatever. Um, but along the way, you know, things we all eat all the time and thinking about my choices, my food choices. I was a vegetarian at that point, not a vegan, uh, but nearly so. Um, and there was a compelling book, compelling to me because it was written by scientists and for scientists. It was by the Union of Concerned Scientists. And they talked about, it was an environmental book. I, I've always cared about the environment and sustainability. But they sort of broke down decisions that we sort of can fret over a lot. Um, do you use paper or plastic bags at the checkout? Uh, do you use disposable diapers or reusable diapers? And uh, one, of those, um, uh, qu- one of those topics kind of revolved around food. And it really it feels like no duh at this point (laughs) that you connect environmentalism and sustainability with food choices. It's actually an extremely important thing. Um, Maybe second only to the car that you drive, maybe not even second to the car that you drive. Um, So I came into it, you know, having that as a big motivation for my own decisions, personal decisions. Um, Not to say that the existing company didn't have that baked into its DNA, but maybe not as emphasized. So as I took over in the CEO role, um, it being my own personal passion, then we kind of built that into the next phase of growth. We cr- you know, built a new building. We built it to a LEED Platinum standard, and it has 400 solar panels on the roof, and it's got a lot of locally sourced materials and sustainable materials and things like that. It's got an electric car charging station out mm-hmm. in front, you know, things that I think a good company does. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily for any particular goal or end, but it just felt right. It had that kind of personal resonance with my own ethics and with my family's ethics. Um, Along those lines, the B Corp certification came about, um, you know, initially just it was interesting to me that this was a new way of looking at or evaluating the good or lack of good within companies um, across a lot of different fronts, even things like governance and visibility to employees and things like that. Um, and I kind of used it as a benchmarking tool initially. I just took the self-audits, and I kind of saw how we stood up, how we stacked up. And we did pretty well. The scoring was good. I couldn't see the value in actually going through the certification at that point. It's somewhat expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, it it does clarify things for consumers. Like, we know who we are and what we stand for. But if you don't visit our plant and see those solar panels on the roof, you know, you can only take our word for it. And we all know that marketing is not always completely honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think having a third party come in and evaluate who you claim you are, put a score to it, and let the world know, yes, you rise to this level, you hit the threshold. I think it's important because we, we all want to know the truth. We all want to dig through the big or small lies of marketing and find the truth. And I think a B Corp certification helps people to do that and have trust.
1: Mm-hmm. And, you know, people, most people listening would have been definitely familiar with Tofurky's products. But, um, what I find interesting, and even in the last few years, I didn't know enough about the company and I've learned a lot, I think just in the last two years, um, which is a very short amount of time about the, you know, the soul behind the company in many ways, because, um, and, and given the rise of plant-based foods and the rise of interest from consumers in this way of eating, um, they undoubtedly discover Tuofarki's products, and so, and they also end up seeing a lot of the new companies that are out there. And I, I like the fact that you pointed out everyone's marketing mission and sustainability, because by virtue of being plant-based, the products are undoubtedly better for the planet, um, better for people's health, hopefully, and great for animals. Um, so there are some inherent values in the in, in any plant-based product, but increasingly you read all the surveys and the research reports about millennials wanting to support value, value-aligned value companies and mission-driven companies. And it's starting to, I think it's sort of an early stage of it, but the greenwashing that was happening, uh, I'm, I'm not claiming there's greenwashing happening in the plant-based food space, but I think there's early stages of a lot of um, marketing speak that that people believe resonates with consumers. And where it gets tougher, for people to identify who are the real authentic brands with real authentic stories. The reason I bring that up is because what I learned in the last two years or so about Tofurky is that it had this fascinating story of uh, a company that was always mission-driven because without the mission, you wouldn't have even been around uh, for so many years. The mission is what drove the company and it just grew organically. Uh, by creating better products that align with that mission how do you look look at that balance between mission and profit or purpose and profit because Toferki has been focused on that since the beginning
2: uh what is your view on that that's a really good question um it, it is a balance i think that you chose the right word there and there's art to it and i wouldn't claim that there's science to it um you know, really profit is not even on the list of motivations for us. I think economic vitality and health is important. We have, you know, jobs on the line. That matters a lot. I can't make decisions that are going to cost people their their jobs. Um, That really is important to me. We also have to have enough um, money flowing to the bottom line that it can become the next year's capital expense um, budget too, because it's an innovative space. We have to always be investing in R&D with new products. We have to be Uh, able to produce those products. Um, But I think it's an easier equation for us because that lack of a need to carve off profit to deliver to shareholders, um, it frees up a lot more to be, you know, redirected back into the company. Um, So I I don't know that there's a formula. There's an instinct, I think, at play there.
1: Right. So, you know, profit is not a bad thing, but it is, um, I think, a and maybe is in a lucky space in that sense because you've grown um, without taking any external investment. You've uh, The company was bootstrapped and kind of grew organically um, versus a lot of companies now in the food space where, where they're competing in an environment where you need to raise capital, most companies, if they want to do something that's big enough that's going to scale nationally, maybe internationally. And then... While they may be true to their mission, I um, may want to have a facility that is uh, got solar panels and an electric car charging station. Those may not be realities that they can focus on. Instead, they have to make sure that they get the right product to the right retailers in the right places so that consumers try it and buy it, and they can get to a point where their investors feel that they're, getting, they're more likely to get a good return on investment. So do you think that's part of the reason is because you are still a 100% family-owned business, that you were able to almost um, adopt the model that, um, say, Patagonia has uh, had, has adopted over the years where intentionally they have stayed private. Um, they have also um, sort of redefined the way in which a company can grow, um, where growth is not the focus, but at the by not making it the focus, they've still managed to grow. Uh, and that's, I think, a beautiful model to, to kind of emulate.
2: I agree. Um, you know, I, I mentioned uh, to you earlier, I have a lot of respect for Patagonia. Um, and one of the things that is most impressive about them is the faith that they have in their consumers. Like Some of their messaging is literally, buy less of our clothes. <laughs> you know, buy stuff that lasts and don't buy it every season and buy the new color. Um, that that's a really attractive message for some reason. I think the authenticity draws people in. Um, and I'm not saying that we deliberately do that, but I think we are authentically authentic without trying. It's not a marketing exercise for us. And you mentioned earlier that you've kind of learned a lot more about our company in the last couple of years. That was an intentional decision too. Um, I think it became apparent to us that the, you know we knew who we are. We assumed that other people knew who we are, but you know, kind of being more transparent and letting people see into our company and, and, uh, you know, warts and all, I guess they, they, they know that they're seeing the truth. Um, and I think again, people will come to you because it's compelling to be spoken to, you know, honestly, it's unfortunately pretty rare in the CPG world too. I think everybody thinks that a big marketing campaign is what's going to drive sales. Maybe at the end of the day, investing in a kind of a more virtuous business model is what drives sales Mm -hmm. because, you know, people do want to make sure that their dollars as consumers are, are going towards good ends. They're not, if you're buying chocolate and it's got slave labor involved in its production, that feels like an awful thing in spite of what might taste like a really good chocolate bar.
1: Right. And, you know, you have to keep in mind there are a lot of new consumers that are probably discovering your products because, you know, we all know we've covered this extensively on this on this podcast about all the trends about people consuming less um, meat and choosing more plant based options when it comes to everything from um, things that they would uh, have for breakfast to you know any meal of the day. You're, they're discovering Tofurky. Perhaps they don't know the history of the brand and uh, some of the iconic Media appearances that Seth Tibbet <laughs> made in uh, in the early years of Toforiki are largely focused, as you pointed out earlier, um, using humor to your benefit by just being, letting people laugh at the Toforki name and using it to be like that's what we're about. And I think that's unique. How do you see that brand story sort of um, evolving? Because you know we're we're talking about your brand and and the story behind it, which is so unique. How do you see that evolving where you have younger consumers who are discovering your products for the first time? And so how do you control or sort of shape your messaging where you have this legacy, loyal consumer base, I'm pretty sure, but at the end of the day, you're also trying to reach new consumers with the with, with these amazing products you have? How do you balance the two things together?
2: That's a good question. It's something that we think about a lot because we do want to reach out to those new potential consumers um you know i think at the end of the day getting our products into the hands and mouths of our potential consumers is the most compelling marketing pitch that we can make um and you know one of our initiatives has been to get more involved more deliberate about our food service program you know these Millennials, a lot of them, you know, I don't know what the age range is technically for millennials, but I, they're younger people, and you know, maybe they're trying tofurkey for the first time in a college campus dining environment. If they know that that's tofurkey then maybe we've created a new lifelong consumer. They enjoyed the experience, they like the fact that it's you know plant based. Maybe they dig a little deeper. It's really easy now to find out about companies, and uh, you can do the research on your own and find out who, who's making your food. What we care about and what your consumer dollar is going to, to fund, and I hope that they see that it's good things. Um, mm-hmm. We just want to be open about who we are, and I think, you know, that that also keeps you honest, knowing that people are going to find out the decisions that you make and maybe question why you made those. Uh, it makes you deliberate a, a little bit more, a little more carefully, and hopefully make the right decisions.
1: So, in in other words, your 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 kind of approach to this is you focus on just being who you are. And you're not trying to be anything different to appeal to what is the flavor of the month or the um, the new packaging trend or the new um, marketing speak that seems to resonate with uh, whoever, at the end of the day, falls within the
2: millennial or Gen Z mm-hmm. category. Um, is that safe to say that that's your approach? Yeah, you know, I think some of those trends uh, at their core have some real substance to them. Mm-hmm. And so we're not going to uh, ignore them. We're going to investigate them just like a consumer would. And we're going to say, is that something that actually adds value for us and for our consumers? Is this way of messaging going to communicate more clearly or more compellingly to our potential consumers? Um, we will take advantage of those things too. Likewise with packaging, is this um, better for the environment? Is, does it draw the eye more? Because we want to draw eyes. Mm-hmm. We want people to try our products. Um, but we want to do it honestly. Right. If it's just this whiz-bang thing that really has nothing um, underneath it, that has no real substance behind it, then we're not interested.
1: Right. And, you know, so let's get to the to the, to the food itself. Um, that's another area that I think a lot of people generally seem to have a misconception about some of the original or older plant-based meat companies or plant-based food companies in general. The misconceptions tend to be that the products are very processed. They contain too many added oils and additives and um, salt. Um, And, of course, I'm sure you're also aware there's this trend toward clean eating where people want to eat packaged foods because of the convenience and the price, but at the same time they want something that is not going to uh, stray from the kind of nutritional Value that they're looking for, so they don't. They they want something clean. They want it to taste like meat, but they want it to be devoid of other things that are going to cause more harm to them. At the same time, so there's definitely been a trend on cutting down on ingredients or simplifying foods, because I think consumers know more. Not for any other reason. I don't think it's a trend. I think it's it's here to stay. People are just more informed and they ask more questions and they read nutrition labels. How has that influenced your existing product line and firstly are those misconceptions warranted even let's start with the misconceptions um what do how do you approach your products and ingredients and how has that changed given these new trends
2: yeah i think some of those are misconceptions i think this word processed it, it means very specific things to each person and it means different things to each person um, unfortunately, there's no such thing as a fake turkey tree. So there's never going to be a single line, in, you know, single ingredient product coming out of the Tofurky factory. Um, the reality, though, is what we make, um, it's not a bunch of scientists with lab coats on. We're more like home cooks with aprons on. Um, I think anybody who saw, like, what goes on in the R&D process, it would be very familiar to them. They'd see the same mixtures that they have in their kitchen. They'd see the same processes you know quote unquote that they go through themselves um the the basic you know kind of historical tofurkey recipe is not that different from bread really um it doesn't it doesn't eat like bread but the basic ingredients the basic you know again process um is very familiar to people who bake their own bread at home and i think you know probably if people could see that process for themselves that gives a lot of comfort in spite of what it says on the ingredient string. Um, I think some things can sound scary or ominous that really aren't. And I think people who take the time to investigate further, they understand that. Not everybody does, though. I think we always have an initial kind of instinctive reaction to things that we read. And, you know, to your point about sodium, yeah, people care a lot about sodium. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that it's true across the board of all of our products that if you compared them to their, you know, animal meat alternatives, um, they would always be lower in sodium. It's something that we, take uh, strides to you know, be conscious of at the very least. The downside of that is usually what people like us use to offset sodium but still have flavor is we use potassium salt instead of sodium salt. Well, currently potassium salt labels as potassium chloride, and mm. that has a kind of miracles of modern chemistry feel to it. <laughs> I think it, it automatically makes people suspicious. Like, what is this awful thing I'm eating? Well, actually, it's something that you need more of in your diet. The, the average American diet has too little potassium and too much sodium. So you know, look past the name and look at the substance and it's actually a good thing to be consuming.
1: Yeah. And how do you get that information across to consumers? Um, At the end of the day, the challenge I think a lot of uh, food companies have always had and will continue to have is to be able to authentically communicate the truth behind their products or their ingredients and be transparent about it, but in a way that the consumer doesn't feel like they're being tricked into buying something or, you know, because traditionally people are, and for good reason, consumers are worried because they were lied about a lot of things, whether it is, you know, high fructose corn syrup or, or, you know, especially being labeled as something that maybe seems pretty benign, but actually wasn't. How do you tackle that challenge? Is it, you know, how you you at the end of the day are selling, you're trying to get retailers to or even food service, um, in the food service category, you're trying to get your products into places where people consume them. Maybe they'll try it and they like it. And then the next question is going to be, well, okay, let me dig deeper. As a food company, and this is just from your experience, because it's a challenge I think every food company faces and will continue to face, how do you um, how do you bring that across to consumers
2: in an effective and convenient, easy way? I wish I had a simple answer to that. You know, I think... <laughs> anything that comes from a company, even what I think is a a good company like Tofurky, automatically you're suspicious because there could be profit motive lurking there. I could Mm -hmm. be being deceived and lied to because this person wants me to buy their product ultimately. So I think I, as a skeptical person also, I I feel that instinct as well. I try to seek out third-party sources. And I think that's, you know, what we really ultimately are most relying on is there's good information out there. Um, And we do our best to direct people to that. But I think coming directly from us um, is is less effective, frankly, right. and uh, especially when you're speaking to a concern that's more emotional in nature. Right. I think that you know it just heightens our skepticism. We're that much harder to convince, and the messenger matters a lot, also. And the person selling the product is probably not the best messenger, right. unfortunately.
1: All right, let's shift gears a little bit beyond um, ingredients to product categories. What, is, um, what has Tofurky been focused on in the last few years? You've definitely got your iconic products, but where are you headed in the next few years? And uh, anything in terms of new launches that you've had recently? I'd like to know what as well as why you chose those categories.
2: Yeah, so I think this year the the couple of new things that we've launched are we have a ham roast. Um, This felt like something that was needed. You know, we were sort of built on a holiday product, and this is another holiday product. And if you look at the stats for turkey, real meat turkey at Thanksgiving, I think something like 97% of households had a turkey. 30-something percent had a ham. So that means a lot of tables had a ham and a turkey. So ham is a part of the holiday traditions of a lot of Americans also. So we decided it was time to launch a ham. Uh, we, we talked about earlier we're a B Corp, and we we like collaborating with other sort of like-minded companies that are doing good in the world in their own particular way. And so we collaborated with a local brewery called Hopworks Brewery in Portland. They're also a B Corp. And we made a glaze out of their beer, and we kind of combined forces and made a, a compelling, I think, a compelling holiday product out of that. So you can take this baste this glaze, bake our holiday ham, and and have a nice um, addition to a potentially, hopefully, vegan um, table. Um, Another product line that we've just recently launched is what we're calling DIY. Mm -hmm. So DIY, we've got four different flavors. One is just burgers, and it it comes in a pretty familiar, if you're a meat buyer, a meat purchaser, a very familiar package. It's a one-pound sort of a, a brick of protein. And you take that and you you know break it out into three or four ounce patties, whatever you know, whatever your preferred size is, whatever your bun size is. And you take your own hands and you form that into a patty and you throw it on the grill, and it sizzles and it drips and it's a really familiar experience. And uh, this is supposed to appeal to I guess a few different demographics. Primarily, we want to lure people who are used to eating meat into mm-hmm. trying a plant-based version of it, and it's going, going to be such a familiar experience for them. And we put a lot of intention into not just mimicking the form flavor and function of these products but also making sure that the price point was approaching or achieving parity with real meat products we didn't want it to be a hardship people shouldn't have to extend themselves to make a plant-based eating decision we want to make that easy for them um and uh you know actually i think our price point on the shelf is a little bit lower than some grass-fed or organic um, hamburgers so i think we've achieved that um and in, in addition, with kind of a similar functionality, we have a breakfast sausage that you, you know, hand form yourself. We have a Italian sausage if you want to make meatballs. And we have a chorizo, which is a little bit looser like real traditional um, chorizo in the sense that you kind of have to – it does stick together a little bit. you got to break it up in the pan a little bit, but it's not quite like a burger where it just wants to, you know, mm. coat – you know, it's – be a big chunk
1: wow and in terms of food service what is your focus over there right now these products I tried some of them (laughs) right here at uh, when we were at Expo East Um, love the ham Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't try the DIY burger so I can't uh, speak to that but um what about in food service what is what are your what is your focus right now over there I know Torfurkey's sort of making strides much faster than most other companies in the space Um, I'd love to
2: hear more about that,
1: college campuses, corporate dining.
2: Yeah, um, it it was a big learning experience for us. We've been primarily a consumer-facing retail brand, and it's something that we've, I think, learned how to do pretty well. Um, We had to hire good, good talent who brought in expertise and knowledge that we didn't have. We sort of organically had a certain amount of sales in the food service space. We had some bulk packaging that was what we thought appropriate for the food service space. But bringing in somebody who really understands the needs of restaurant operators was really critical for us, and she helped us to better design case packs that worked for operators, and made sure that our products were really going to fit with how a person actually runs a restaurant. Um, and you know, the initial outreach has been through you know food service shows that target campuses and institutional dining. That felt like the the fastest way to make impact. People were preparing a thousand plates a day per meal. Those are you know, change-makers, potentially, if they're willing to take a chance on a, a plant-based product. So that's our initial effort. Um, but I think from there, there's a lot of opportunity. As a vegan myself, as I travel, um, I'm shocked at the lack of vegan options on most menus. I think you're lucky to find a, a veggie burger in most places. And I've eaten enough veggie burgers at this point in my life. I want some more options. And there are great options out there. You know, As retail consumers, we see those all the time on the store shelves. I want to see those on menus also. So
1: so Forky is definitely focusing on trying to partner with restaurants as well so that we can, you know, travel to any part of the country. And hopefully there'll be an option on the menu um, that someone who doesn't choose to eat meat can choose besides uh, the mushy veggie burger.
2: Yeah. And moreover, more importantly, I think the people who do choose to eat meat, Mm -hmm. maybe just dabbling. Maybe their doctor has suggested that they maybe tone it down a little bit with the meat consumption. Or maybe they've just heard about this interesting plant-based trend because we're in this explosion of interest from mm-hmm. the media and also these great new products coming out. Hopefully that, that draws people's interest. Hopefully that compels people to at least give them a try. And I think the quality of our products and our peers' products has really um, been revolutionized over the last few years. It's not the sort of thing that's going to scare off a meat eater. Mm-hmm. I, I want them to try it because I think they'll be pleasantly surprised.
1: Right. And what are your thoughts on the industry in general? There's obviously it, we we started off talking about that. There's a lot of um, a lot of hype. There's a lot of new companies. There's a lot of you know warranted hype too because the products are really interesting and um, it seems like consumers just want more of it. And most of these companies can't even. You don't even have the capacity to produce enough to keep up with the demand, and it's it's all a good good problem to have. Um, what do you what has made you really excited about what's happening in the industry, just beyond even plant based meats, but the the entire sector of uh, plant based foods, whether it's cheeses and milks and other things? Um, what are you most excited about, and uh, where do you think the most growth is is going to come
2: from, based on your experience? Um, yeah, that's, a, that's another really good question. Um, you know, I'm excited, actually, this hype. And yeah, unfortunately, I think some of it is a bit of hype. And mm-hmm. I think um, you know we've seen a lot of dollars go into some of these startups that are pretty early stage. And I think that those dollars come with strings attached often and maybe some short horizons, some three or five year exit plans. And so people need to get really big, really fast as a result of that. Hence all the marketing dollars and hype. Um, but like you also said, I think that there are some really good products behind that hype. I, uh, you know, I, I fear that, uh, some of these products, uh, you know, won't be around in three or five years. That's, that's my fear as a consumer, I guess. Um, but you know, I think the whole industry is benefiting from that hype to some degree. It's really drawn a lot of attention in the media. Um, you know, we're having that same problem of keeping up with demand ourselves, even as, you know, a company that's been around for a long time. I think, you know, I have to give credit to that hype. It's really drawn attention and people it's created this, this sense of a tipping point being a, approached. And I hope that's the reality. I think the unfortunate thing is that retailers, um, they seem to lag behind a little bit. Mm-hmm. They are skeptical or for whatever reasons internally, they just don't see that there is this massive amount of demand that they really need to be expanding their sets of plant-based products. And uh, oftentimes, they're really small sections. They're 8 or 12 feet of shelf. Mm -hmm. And um, that's not enough to hold all these products. And my hope is not that it becomes a dogfight fighting for market share and and share of shelf, but that those shelves grow and that there's room for all of those products. Um, Because it's a very vulnerable time when you're brand new in the marketplace. Getting those initial shelf placements can be really difficult. And the success or failure there can dictate the success or failure of entire companies. And I think... With Given enough shelf space, I know consumers like diversity. I know that consumers really want to try the new things that they've heard about. And it's frustrating as as a consumer to hear about this great product, but it's only available in one store or one region of stores, and it's not where you live. Um, And, you know, there might be new ways of delivering products to consumers also, even perishable products, um, that will help to to fill some of that gap. Um, And I think that would allow companies to prove the market potential with real dollars, real revenues, um, real turn of their products, and therefore compel those kind of stodgy retail um, category managers that yeah, there's real potential here for this products. Can we please just add four feet to your section?
1: Yeah, and you know, you you pointed out something very interesting about <clears throat> the amount of money that's being put into some very early stage companies, um, and you may have and you mentioned it that they'll have very short horizons and they're going to have to have some sort of exit. I'd love to understand your take on that because you're still independent, as I pointed out earlier, family owned, no outside investment. I'm assuming no plans to sell or exit anytime soon. What are your thoughts on companies that are being, are going in with a very clear focus to get out in a few years?
2: Yeah, um, to answer your question, sort of a question about us. We have no intentions of taking outside money. It's something that we considered at one point, um, you know, some years ago. We indulged in some conversations and we decided this didn't feel right. You know, Tofurky is a member of our family practically and having, you know, I don't know, putting your your family member up for adoption just didn't feel right. Um, yeah, I I guess there's an anecdote that I think is sort of relevant here. So um, there was a Facebook post uh, from the Tofurky Facebook page at some point and somebody kind of chimed in and said, isn't Toferki owned by the RJ Reynolds corporation, this tobacco corporation? And I was horrified. No, we're not. We never would be. But that makes me think about these three and five year horizon companies and who does acquire them. It's whoever probably bids the highest, frankly. Mm-hmm. And if RJ Reynolds owned Toferki, would I buy tofurkey I don't know if I would. I think in spite of like good products, that would really, you know, be hard for me to get over that fact. Um, so yeah, that, that that does worry me, I guess. You know, what is who is the ultimate kind of owner of these companies? Where again, where are your dollars going? We all care about that. We don't wanna as consumers be funding bad corporate behavior or you know, making fat cats fatter, I guess ultimately. Um, so that's a real risk, I think, with some of these shorter horizon companies.
1: And it's gonna take really good entrepreneurs to be able to take outside investment grow their companies fast enough to prove to their investors that they're going to have any hope of getting their return on investment, and then maybe even if they do have that exit into a much larger food company, um, to sort of guide that mothership in the right direction. Um, because, you know, there's another side to this. Well, I can I can totally see staying independent is, is if you can, and you can continue to grow and expand, which obviously Tofurky is doing right now then that's that's the best way to go most likely but for those that have now taken investment and have to show and have to have an exit or some sort of a rapid growth spurt in the next few years i think there may be a right way to do that too and i think we need to also um encourage companies to be able to do that because if not we're never going to change the the bigger companies but it's right now it's too early to say where any of this is going to Turn out, right? When the Pepsi's and the PNG's and the Cokes come acquiring little plant based food startups, some of them are going to let those companies run and do their thing and be authentic to their original mission, while others most likely are going to come in and um, sort of dilute the brand firstly and eventually perhaps dilute the products with uh, the the crap that people want to get away from, and which is why they choose the products in the first place. So do you see any, how, what advice would you give to an entrepreneur? I'm sure you, you talk to a lot of young entrepreneurs that are trying to get into this space who is sort of, needs the capital because that's the space we're in right now. You, you, you need the capital to compete. How did they protect themselves, their mission, their brand? And then maybe even if they do get acquired someday by a bigger corporation, hopefully, hopefully not RJ Reynolds. Hmm. Um, how did they keep that authentic mission and stay focused? Or you know, is that really a tough thing to do?
2: I think it is. You know, I think about our story and you know, being founded in 1980 with family money. I mean. We're talking about seventeen thousand dollars back then. I think was the total amount of money it took to start this company. You're not starting any sort of company for seventeen thousand dollars in 2017. That just is. That's not a reality that exists anymore. So you do. You need money. Maybe you have rich relatives, and that's great. You get a lot more control because they trust you. They have faith in you. Um, but I think there is a generalizable story to be um, kind of extracted from the Tofurky story, which is what matters is that your funders uh, have alignment with you, that they care about the same things as you, that they have faith in you also. Um, and if they have faith in you, then you're going to be able to just, you know, use your entrepreneurial spirit, um, your curiosity, your, your passion for the products that you make, um, to, to, you know, make change in the world. And if you're, if that's your seed round, then you probably want to find partners in your, your series A round that, again, that has that kind of um, harmonious vision of of what the potential of the company is. And avoid those ones who are just purely motivated by profit profit and the quick flip. I mean, that's a terrible position to be in because suddenly you've lost control. The the reins have dropped out of your hand and the horse is out of control. And it's running towards a cliff, and the cliff is probably an exit for you. You're going to be forced to divest from your company. You're going to be sold ultimately. You're going to have to watch as some other person, some other company uh, uses all the goodwill you've built up with your consumers to their own ends hopefully they're good ends but not necessarily always mm-hmm. um, And I think you know even even big companies that are not RJ Reynolds I don't know why I'm picking on them today <laughs> um, they they still might stifle the creativity and growth of a smaller entity just because there's bureaucracy always with bigger companies mm-hmm. and I think that that alone that cultural shift can be, Really um, detrimental to what was a kind of passion-built entrepreneurial exercise. Um, you're used to being nimble as a you know a completely self-owned entity, and I don't think that that's necessarily a very typical uh, typical situation in a more corporate environment. And so, just that alone, lo- losing that founder passion or that founder empowerment, I think, can have its own detriments.
1: Right, and. You know, I think resources like the Plant-Based Food Association, which I know you, Tofurky, is one of the founding members of, are going to play an increasingly important role in the years ahead, I think. in the next few years are going to be crucial years in this space to be able to guide entrepreneurs, connect them to the right people, um, connect them to the right mentors, even, so that they can see every side of the story. Can you tell me why you even... um, Joined the PBFA uh, we had Michelle on the on the podcast recently as well um, I know it's fairly new what do you see the role that that organization is going to play in uh, guiding companies entrepreneurs want to be entrepreneurs in this space going forward um, what do you why did you join and what are you hoping to get out of it as Tofurkey, and what do you hope to part on other companies that are around and maybe yet to come
2: yeah you know even prior to the PBFA um, coming into existence I think that our industry has been uh, kind of rare in the sense that it's highly collaborative and friendly you know, I think natural products in general have had that history um, things have changed a little bit over the, over time but I still see our quote unquote competitors more as peers um, and I think that that spirit is what motivated us to get involved in the PBFA in the future and also, the sense that we could probably do more good collectively than separately. And uh, that good can come in a lot of forms. Um, we have a, a mentorship program within the PBFA that I, I get a lot out of. You know, I've got a mentee, and they come to me with questions. And uh, there's something about the passion and zeal that an earlier stage uh, company or entrepreneur brings to the table that, you know, I, I, I feed off of that also. It's exciting to, to see the world through their eyes and see the potential that they have in front of them. Um, and also, I think there are some collective actions that we can take. I talked about retailers not seeing the potential of this category or not being up to speed with the growing potential of the category. I think collectively, we can talk to them um, in a more convincing way. We can come up with retailer engagement programs that are represent the industry, not just one brand's ambitions. And I think that that's more persuasive. And also uh, media narratives. You know, mm-hmm. I think that, again, like we all read media, we all read marketing. And if it comes from one company, we're always a little suspicious that it's the profit motivation of that company that is really underneath that message. And I think when you speak for the entire industry as the PBFA does, that's different. You know, I think, I think the message is different. It's, it almost divorces it from profit motive in a sense, at least from one specific company's profit motive.
1: Right. No, I think it's a crucial organization and, uh, you know, it's very early on right now, but um, I see that collaborative spirit in this industry, which is unlike most others. And uh, many other things make it unlike others is um, the fact that everyone who, at least traditionally, everyone who got into this space got into it only because they personally had some mission. Um, They were either vegan themselves um, or perhaps... Had discovered the power of uh, plant based food and had learned how to prepare it and cook it, and now wanted to turn that into a product. That passion to see that now scale up into this organized force um, is really interesting. And I mean, I'm very excited to see where this all heads because um, we have a lot of people jumping onto the bandwagon now (laughs) of uh, becoming a food startup that's in the quote unquote plant based space. And as you pointed out earlier, there's going to be many of these brands, unfortunately, that are not going to weather the storm that's eventually going to come um, after we have this sort of honeymoon period that we're going through right now. So it's um, you're lucky, I think, in that sense, you get to sit above it, having this established brand that kind of knows who you are, um, who isn't trying to be anything else and is just trying to get better products out there and stay true to your original mission. Um, and again, you don't have to answer to to anyone mm-hmm. besides yourselves and your own employees and um, your own consumer base, which I think is liberating. I mean, I, I, as an entrepreneur myself, the most liberating thing is to not have to, um, is to not have a boss. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you take outside investment and you have um, multiple rounds and you've got investors perhaps that are not aligned with some of your goals, you end up in a situation where you kind of feel like you're doing someone else's work, and which is not why most people start companies um, or run companies even. So um, given we're at this point now, um, at this very exciting phase in the food space overall, in the natural food space, and specifically in the plant-based food space, given what Turfurkey has done in the la- over the last 37 years, um, did I get that right? Yeah, Yes, 37. 37 years. Wow. Where do you see this space going in the next 30 years? given if assuming Tofurki continues to be on this path of furthering your mission, putting out better products out there, expanding in food service, um, winning some of those battles with retailers and getting more shelf space, expanding globally, which I know is one of the big um, focus right now for Tofurki as well. What kind of a food system do you foresee 30 years from now um, when hopefully we have succeeded in doing all these amazing things we wanted to do in changing the food system? What is your vision for the year 2050?
2: Um, I think you're right. We're on the verge of some really big shifts in in, the retail uh, food environment and the the restaurant food environment as well. Um, I can only hope that it's to the degree that you and I probably wish, which is absolute. There's, I don't think there's any need for animals to be a part of our food system. There are many reasons not to have them as part of the food system. Um, animal welfare being one that comes to mind, and obviously sustainability, health. Um, you know, as far as what Tofurky's role is, you know, I hope some of these ambitions that we've talked about, you know, bear fruit. I think that they are showing signs of that already. I think internationally, we're going to be a more significant brand than we are now. I think in food service, we will as well. Um, and I think you know I kind of mentioned on how much we like engaging and collaborating with other companies. And another ambition of ours is to use what we've built um, to help other brands succeed. I would love to be a go-to resource for manufacturing and compliance and all the kind of operational nuances that oftentimes a, a younger entrepreneur doesn't even isn't even aware of. They don't realize that the FDA is going to come knocking someday. Mm-hmm. And what is FISMA compliance anyway? Um, well, we know what that stuff is. and there's no reason to duplicate that over and over and over iteratively across this entire landscape of companies. I think if we can share resources, I mean it's a, it's a tilted battle right now. We're you know we're a really small piece of the overall food system, and all of the animal based um, businesses are are massive by comparison. That's not as true when we kind of work collectively, and that's where I think again, that PPFA kind of collective action has a real chance to, um, you know, level the playing field somewhat, and I want Tofurkey's role to be one of mentorship, support, maybe even manufacturers for some of these brands. I would, I think, that would be a really, uh, you know, admirable thing for us to engage in, and it's also good business. I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, there are lots of businesses that that's all that they do. They private label, they co-pack, and that could be an element of our business also.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean I think at the end of the day you've um, you've got knowledge insights and have fought and lost and won some of those battles that I think a lot of these newer companies are going to have to fight and win and and learn and and um, you know PBFA is just one way to get through to that with a mentorship program but if you can you if you can use this knowledge base and then spread it across the industry you, we could end up in that space uh, in, the, in that place 20 years um 30 years from now, uh, nearly in 2050, when we've sort of shifted the food industry because, not because of one company, because one company can't do it alone. You need this collective action. And I think that is what's going to help this space. And and correct me if you think I'm wrong on this, but I think that's what's going to help the plant-based food space survive and thrive and take us to that place. Not the hype, not necessarily the trends in the food space, none of that. It's companies and individuals who are going to continue to stay committed to their original mission that they set out to do and collaborating with others who are sort of the same and share the same mission. That collective group uh, is going to outlast any any new trend that's out there. And I think maybe that's going to get us to the place where we all want to be in 2050, where animal-based foods are, if not non-existent are kind of sort of a niche a a small thing that you maybe some people consume um through certain very specialized sources and that's pretty much it and the rest Mm -hmm. of the industry has been transformed
2: yeah i think you put that really well i mean that's a beautiful vision of the future um it, it i think it's unfortunate that there aren't more companies like us out there that have managed to maintain their independence um and you know i feel a responsibility in some ways to the industry to to hold out um I think, you know, we've talked about some of the downsides of being acquired by bigger companies, and I think, um, you know, we can hold the industry to a more innovative sort of standard by maintaining our independence, and that's a role that I hope that we continue to play.
1: Well, Jamie, thank you so much for the time today, for all your insights, um, for everything that Tofurky has done and will hopefully continue to do in the years ahead. Um, I think your company is a A true example and it's going to continue to stay unique as the space evolves and uh, all I can say is that I keep telling people you have to be authentic but you, you know Tofurky has done that you don't even have to try you're just being what what you are and I think that shows in the products it shows in your brand and I think it shows in the story that you shared with us today about what you your take on the company is and where you see it going in the future. So thank you very much.
2: Well, thank you. That's really, it's all very kind words and it's been a pleasure talking to
1: you. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening.